Well, in the church in Corinth, brothers and sisters and boys and girls, there were a lot of problems with division. You can see that in verse 11 and 12 if your Bibles are open, which I encourage, and if you look back, you'll see that there in those verses. Paul had appealed in verse 10 that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. But there were divisions. And these weren't divisions of a kind of intellectual, like theological sort. You know, sometimes division is necessary. You could say the Protestant Reformation was a necessary division within the history of the church. There's a place for contending for the faith against heresy. But this is not that kind of division in Corinth. It's, it's more social. It's more relational. And you can see a hint of that in verse 11 with the word quarreling. Quarreling, which in another translation, the NIV, I believe, has rivalry. It's also appropriate. Well, we can have these problems in the church today, too, unfortunately. It's too often that we hear of distrust within the church, of, of politicking within the church, of competition. And when these things happen and when it leads to division, the consequence is so negative. And if we want to find a way to encapsulate what the consequence exactly is, you can see that in verse 17, where Paul says, we do not want to empty the cross of its power. That's what happens when there's all this unnecessary division. The cross is emptied of its power. Now, you might hear that and think, how is that possible Well, it's not that the work of Christ loses its objective accomplishment. That's happened. Christ Jesus really loved both God and man, and and so because the Father loves us and, and because the Son loves us, Jesus really did come to this earth in the flesh. He really did submit Himself to the will of God. He endured opposition and suffering, and He really did conquer sin, Satan, and death. That's His objective accomplishment. That's the powerful work He has done. So that's not what it's saying, that that can somehow be done away with. But, but the work of Christ can lose its subjective effect. So when we do not love, when we do not show humility and, and submission and a readiness to endure suffering and resist the devil in imitation of our Savior, then we show that our hearts and our lives have not been changed. And then we're just another charitable organization. We're just another community group. There's no special power then. And so it's a serious problem, division. How can we solve it? What can Paul do to solve the division in Corinth? Well, Paul needs to revisit the root of the problem for the Corinthian church. He needs to reinstill in the Corinthian church a wonder at the love of God as fully displayed in Christ Jesus, and he needs to reacquaint the Corinthian Christians with the centrality of the cross as the revelation of the power of God. And this is not just for the Corinthian church, of course, but this is also for us here today. We need to center our lives on the crucified Christ, our Lord Jesus. Although crucifixes are not appropriate as symbols, you know, a cross with with an image of Jesus on it, since Christ has ascended into heaven and that's where He wants us to worship Him. So that's not what we're talking about, but we do need to remain fixed on the crucified Christ. That is on His status as the one who was crucified. So the message of the cross is foolishness to some, that's true, but for us it is the wisdom and power of God. And so we'll take it in that way. First we'll see how the message of the cross is considered foolishness 
and then we'll see that the message of the cross is wisdom. Well, I want you to imagine two things with me. Imagine if uh, this afternoon when we come back to worship, there's a, there's a woman, unfamiliar woman, she walks into the church, and she's wearing a pair of dangle earrings that are shaped like a Nazi swastika. Or also imagine if you were driving out of here today or in the next few days, and there's another church in town, they have this big white wall on their building, but it's not white anymore because they put a mural there, and that mural shows the gas chambers of a concentration camp. What would you think? Well, you would be horrified, wouldn't you? You'd be absolutely horrified, and you'd be right to feel that way. Because those images that I just described, they're shocking, and they are abhorrent to anyone who lived through World War II especially, but also anyone who's lived since then, who's the least bit culturally and historically aware. Because when we see those images, it brings up thoughts of evil and prejudice and tyranny and the wretchedness, the very worst of humanity. Well, that same sort of shocked horror that you just felt there that we're just talking about, that was associated with the symbol of the cross and the concept of crucifixion in the first century, right? It was such a horrible thing that no Roman citizen could really die this way. There were some exceptions to that, but it had to be very explicitly laid out by the Caesar, by the Roman emperor. as the worst of all punishments reserved for, for slaves and for strangers to the empire, is wretched, dehumanizing, the most torturous death around. And we can forget that sometimes, or at least we cannot appreciate that so easily because we are so culturally distant from that time. But to truly, to fully appreciate the wonder of the gospel, it's important to try our best to bridge this cultural gap, this distance. And so this passage helps us with that quite a bit. How does the passage begin? Verse 18 for the word of the cross is folly, or the message of the cross is foolishness. It's interesting, right off the bat, we can, we can see that there's a contrast being made here in verse 18 between folly and power. Now, if you're contrasting something with power, what would you contrast with it? Weakness, right? And that's, in fact, done later on. The weak and the strong, that's the natural contrast. But you see, for the people of Corinth, these cultured citizens of this important city, power was not a matter of force, of strength in that way. Power was all about effect and influence. So in order to have power, somebody needed to be wise. And that's why we see in verse 22, at the end of verse 22, the Greeks seek wisdom. They loved wisdom. They loved wit. They loved eloquence. They loved intellect. They loved the ability to engage with all the different philosophies of the day. That was power. The cross? The cross is, is foolishness. It's not wise. It's not really hard to empty it of its power, they would say, because it didn't have much power to begin with. Put yourself in the, in the shoe of the Corinthian objector. They say, you say that the cross is all about humiliation or rejection? place of greatest weakness and suffering. It's synonymous with death. And then you say that the, the message of the cross is that the one who died on it is somehow the Savior of the world? That the ultimate hero of this world was crucified? And that we can look to Him in His humiliation and His suffering and His dying and, and somehow find glory and prosperity and life? 
And what's more, you say that the message of the cross is that we are called to imitate this, this one, not in his saving purposes, he's uniquely the Savior, but, but you say that we're called to identify with him in his humiliation, to follow in his footsteps, in suffering, and then you say that this is all good news? How foolish. It's foolish. Pa- power's not found in this. Power's found in achievement. Power's found in self-promotion. Power's found in winning competitions. Power's found in aligning yourself with the preferred people of society, the popular people of society. This is the, the ethos of Corinth. This is what they value. This is how they, generally speaking, think. So then they would say, if you want to, the message of the cross to be powerful, then what you need to do is you need to start debating the wise men of our time. Oh, and by the way, it would be helpful, they say to the Christian, it would be helpful if you could soften your rhetoric so that you don't present such a stumbling block to the Jews. Because after all, Jesus was a Jew, right? That's how your story goes. So, so you have a shot at winning a bunch of them over if you can just soften your rhetoric a little bit, speak a bit more carefully. But then as you debate the wise men of, a, of our time, what you want to do is win over the most important people first, the people that have influence in Corinth the people who have the noble bloodlines, the people who have the wealth and are well thought of in society. Everyone else will come easier if you can just accomplish this. But to call your message as you currently preach it good news, it's, it's so unwise. It's, it's foolishness. Nobody's going to buy into your nonsense. It's just not realistic. You need to be realistic. This is the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, do you have any sympathy with this way of thinking? Do you have any tendency within you to wonder about the strategy of centering a message of good news around a horrible and shameful death? Perhaps you do. And so this is where we make the turn to the truth of the matter, that the message of the cross is wisdom. Because what does the cross do? The cross reminds us of the true reality of the world. If the world says to the Word, foolish, then the Word says to the world, perishing. Right? It's the message of the world that is ultimately foolishness, because for all of its supposed wisdom, the world does not have an answer to avoid weakness and humiliation and suffering and death. All of that is coming to everyone because of sin. Romans 2 verse 5 explains this. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And those words are for every man, every human. Not just the philosophers and debaters of this age relying on worldly wisdom as they do. It is for them. But it's also for every Jew and Gentile For every cultured person and barbarian, the opposite of a cultured person, it's for all of us. We all have turned aside from God. There is no one by nature who does right on their own and so is right with God on their own. But what did Christ do? Christ answered the unanswerable question. He became the solution to weakness and humiliation and suffering and death. And then when he rose from the dead, what we see in him is the the wonderful reversal of the gospel, which has implications for all creation. 
Isaiah 49, verse 7 says this, This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, this is what he says, Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. See, there's a reversal in there. There's the one who was despised and rejected, but He became the glorious one. The one who suffered in humiliation, now rejoicing in exaltation. That is the power of God in Christ. And it is not just about Christ, but it's about all the people who God has given to Christ, who the Father has given to the Son. We all will be saved to this new reality too. And our reading from Isaiah 29 spoke of this, this beautiful reversal of the gospel, this good news for us. In a very short time will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field, and the fertile field seem like a forest, from barrenness to abundance, right? In that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll. The deaf will hear? Amazing. And out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Wow. Once more the humble will rejoice in the Lord, the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. So this is the good news. From, from weakness to strength, from suffering to glory, from death to life. This is the power and wisdom of God in Christ. And verse 24 says, those who are called recognize this. It's those who are called that know this. And for us, Christ Jesus has become, verse 30, important verse, He has become righteousness sanctification and redemption. Now that speaks to the benefits, the many benefits that we have in Christ. You know, I don't know what you think about when you think of salvation, but sometimes when we think of salvation, people think purely in terms of our justification. That is, that we are made right with God, we are justified before Him when we first believe, and so we are saved. Sometimes people think of our salvation merely in terms of our glorification. That is, that when Christ returns, He will take us to be with Himself, and we will be saved. But actually, it's both of those things. And it's everything in between, which we can call our sanctification. Our salvation in Christ does indeed consist of our being righteous in Him. That's the core of it. That's the foundation of it all. That God looks at us as perfectly pure and totally acceptable because Jesus is perfectly pure and totally acceptable. And so of Jesus, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And of us, he can say, you are my beloved children, and I am pleased. But our salvation in Christ also consists of our being sanctified in him. We don't want to forget that piece. So important. That the spirit of Christ is at work in us, renewing us so that we will look more like him in our, our mind and our will and our affections. As Scripture says, by His Spirit, He is conforming us to the image of the Son. And then our salvation in Christ, yes, it does consist of our being redeemed in Him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, Jesus is it all for us. But this seems foolish to the world, yes, because what part of this is my doing? What part of this is your doing? None of it. It's all a gift. It's all a gift, and that's so countercultural, that's so counterintuitive to the Corinthian mind and to the natural mind of man. They want promotion of the self rather than 
receiving gifts. They, they want to receive glory, not, not give it. But the wisdom of God, foolish as it may appear, outsmarts any wisdom that the world has to offer. That's what verse 25 tells us. And then notice the next few verses, verse 26 through 28. What does it say there? That God purposefully chose those who are not wise in the eyes of the world to be His people. He made a conscious decision, a purposeful, intentional choice to choose people who are not people of power and influence, that are foolish in the eyes of the world, that are, that are weak, that are low and despised. And in doing this, God accomplishes two things. First, He shames those who would boast in themselves. Right? Their boasting does no good because they've, they've failed to deal with the problem, as we said earlier, of their perishing. So the Word says to the world, God says to those who would boast in themselves, perishing. Second thing God accomplishes in this, He encourages all the glory to go to His name. For what could we boast in? What could we boast in? We're only worthy because He has chosen us to be worthy. Christ is our salvation from beginning to end. But is it really wise for God to desire all the glory? Like what if we could have earned something, just a little bit, and then had a little bit of glory? If you're tempted to think less of God somehow because He desires all the glory rather than share it, then brother or sister, realize that we are most fully alive when we give Him all the glory because this is what we were created to do. And so as we do what we were created to do, as we give Him glory, then we do share in Him in the end, in the abundant blessing and, and joy of finding true life in Him. And so what does this mean for you as one who is being saved? Well, this means your ground for glorying is only in Him. It's not in your home. You might have a nice home. It's not in that. It's not in your children. They might have done a lot of things. They might be very cute. It's not in them. It's not in your achievements, however impressive they may be. It's not in your social media presence, no matter how curated and fine that looks. It's not in your possessions. You might have a lot of them. All of these things that I've just listed there, they, they range, of course, some of those things are very good. They, they range from innocent pleasure on the one hand to illusion and self-deception on the other, depending on how we view them. Your ground for glorying is only in Him. Second thing this means for those who are being saved, you've been redeemed. You've been redeemed, and this protects you from, from self-blame or self-reproach on the one hand, but it also frees you from the need for self-praise on the other. It's liberating. Let's narrow this down a bit more to the church. What does this mean for you as a member of Christ's church? Well, it means a couple of things. It means that you are of equal worth and value compared to everyone else in the church. Social and economic differences matter in the world quite a bit. You know that. I don't have to tell you that. They shouldn't matter in the church. They ought not to become sources of division here in the church, but rather opportunities to show Christian love and care. Second thing this means for us as members of the church, that power and influence do not function the same way in the church 
as in the world. In the world, your, your humble origins, well, actually, sometimes that's a benefit, isn't it? Uh, rags to riches stories and all that. But your messy background sometimes can be a hindrance in the world. It might not qualify you for service or acceptance. If you're not put together enough, you know. But your level of put-togetherness, if we can call it that, is not the way to gain esteem from others in the church. And how about the world as we relate to the world? We, we are here today, but then you go out into the world, and we live among the people of this world. We are called, though not to be of the world, to indeed be in the world. What does this all mean for you in that respect? Well, one, you don't need to concern yourself with catering to those people who are important in the eyes of the world. You just don't need to worry about it. It's not that none of them are saved. It's important to remember that too. This is not a, a passage against being rich or, or having influence or having some level of power. There's a story told of a countess who liked to say that she was saved by the letter M. She was saved by an M. And you think that's weird. What does she mean by that? Well, it's a reference to this passage because it doesn't say in verse 26, not any of you were wise, and so on, but it says not many of you. So she was very encouraged by the M at the beginning of that word. And in any case, as you look at the church in Corinth, there are people who are, are rich. The diversity of the church in Corinth is remarkable, like all these other churches, rich and poor people alike coming together in this diverse community united by the gospel. But the point is that if they are saved, it's all of grace just like for anyone else. No one is beyond His grace, but no one is without need for His grace. And so the point then is to be impressed with Christ and not with ourselves or with other people, no matter what worldly wisdom says about it. So that's the first thing as we relate to those who are in the world. The second thing, you don't need to cater to worldly ideas of wisdom. So not to worldly people of some account, but not, also not to worldly ideas. I mean, we're going to be considered foolish anyway. You can try to moderate your ideas, but you're going to be considered foolish if you truly believe the gospel. So there's no need then to compromise with the world out of some sense of desperation. And also, on the other hand, there's no need to compete with the world out of some sense of frustration. In both ways, we err with folly. We fall into a foolish position. D.A. Carson commenting on this says, We are as foolish as the Corinthians when we make much of what cannot endure, when we promote the values and plans and programs of a world that is passing away as if they bear any deep significance. No, the gospel relativizes all of these things, and so we can be content with being considered foolish. That's the third thing. Faithful Christians will be culturally marginalized looks different from time to time, place to place, but it is the truth. David Garland is a commentator on Corinthians, and he, he points out the difference between the Thessalonian church and the Corinthian church. They both were founded within months of each other, and, and the one church, Thessalonica, testifies of painful conflict with outsiders and a sense of alienation from society and hostility to it and the affliction and dishonor of their leaders. The other church, Corinth, 
this church is, is characterized by relatively peaceful relations with outsiders in the city and pretty close integration with a society that is hostile to the wisdom of the cross. Given the hostility, you wouldn't think the integration, but it's there. And so the Corinthians' faith appears to have not resulted in much uh, social and, and moral realignment in their lives. And that lack of external pressure from the outside does contribute to internal division, which is, again, a huge problem here. Which church is healthier? Which church is healthier? And which church is this church more like? Perhaps a question to reflect on. So when that marginalization and that hostility comes, don't be discouraged. Remember that God can work through that which is foolish and weak and despised in the eyes of the world. And in fact, not only can He work through this, but He delights to work through weakness and all of these things. But also, on the other hand, do remember this. Don't glory in that marginalization and hostility for its own sake. In other words, don't wear it as a badge of honor. Don't, don't invite it, wear it as this badge of honor, and, and that's it. Look at us. We're the persecuted church. So thankful for the freedoms we have. But no, grieve, brothers and sisters. Grieve for a world that is lost in foolishness that masquerades as wisdom. And then seek to win over the worldly wise. Right? Interact with them for their own salvation. Work patiently to draw others into the better way, the way of life. And so as we consider all these things, as we balance all of this together, brothers and sisters, now we close the message, and I tell you, ignore the siren call of worldly wisdom. Just ignore it, and hear the wisdom of God as He calls out to you. Are you in Christ Jesus? The critical question. Are you counted among those who have been called, who are believed, who believed and are being saved? Then embrace the power of the cross for what it is. Remember the reversals of the gospel and glory in hope. Remember that the way of strength is found in the way of weakness. That the way to go up is found by going down. That the way out of suffering is found by entering into suffering. That the way to truly live, fully live, is found in dying to all that is false. I said, embrace the power of the cross. That's the language of our text. But, but embrace Christ, right? To put a point to it. Embrace Christ Himself, crucified for you, so that He would become your wisdom, your righteousness, your sanctification, and your redemption. As Paul writes at the end of his letter to the Galatians, we can model this. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. The new creation. That's what it's all about. Where Christ will reign in glory and we will live forever with Him in perfect union. That's the reality. That's what matters. This is the wisdom and power of God. Amen.